from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the College of Journalism and Mass Communications. This is Watch the Media. I'm John Schrader. In 2022, a record 33 Cubans played in Major League Baseball. More than a dozen were in the playoffs, and three Cubans won the World Series with the Houston Astros. Yuli Gurriel, Aledmis Diaz, and Jordan Alvarez. They represent the new generation of cooperation between Cuban baseball and Major League Baseball. The history of baseball in the little island 90 miles south of Florida is rich. The game and its place in American baseball, though, changed dramatically when Castro took over in 1959. Adrian Burgos Jr. is a historian of Cuban baseball. He made the following comments in a documentary MLB Network produced in 2017 titled Cuba, Island of Baseball. And I fervently believe that we underappreciate the challenge of being men without a country of being men who have a new homeland and yet achieve greatness. Nobody else in baseball had to go through that circumstance like they did. For muchos años, me gustaba que la temporada de, de baseball que fuera todo el año, que no parara. It is a home run, Tony Oliva. Cuando terminaba la temporada de pelota y me iba para la casa, entonces era muy triste porque toda mi familia estaba en Cuba y no sabía cuándo podía verlas. That was the Hall of Famer Tony Oliva, who played 15 seasons with the Minnesota Twins starting in 1962. He says it was difficult for him because while many of his teammates went home in the offseason, he couldn't go home to Cuba, and it made him very sad. Those same sentiments came in this comment from Luis Tiant, who was a big leaguer for 19 seasons, including years with the Indians and the Red Sox. After the season, all those guys happy, oh, I'm gonna come back to my country, I'm gonna have a Christmas. Well, you know what happened was, the Christmas, they invite to the party, have a good time, and laughing, and drinking, eat. See, coming to my mind, uh, my mom and dad. I start thinking, well, I don't know what my father and mother do. I don't know if they eat. Then that thing starts working in your head. I, I used to go out. Then I start crying outside. I, I can't do anything. I can't come back to my country. If I want to, it was hard for me. That's Luis Tian, the great Cuban right-hander. We're gonna spend this program talking about Cuban baseball. Cesar Brioso is a Cuban-American journalist who's written extensively about baseball, including a book published by the University of Nebraska Press. All coming up next on Watch the Media, I'm John Schrader. Cesar Brioso is the author of Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. He's been kind enough to spend some time with us talking about that, which I think is a really interesting tale, and about the Latin American influence in Major League Baseball and much more. So, Cesar, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So this is all fascinating to me. You talk about how baseball in Cuba 
what it meant to the Cubans, what it meant to big league baseball, how many uh, people were influenced in big league baseball, uh, Calvin Griffith of the Senators and a number of others. Uh, but then again, Castro changed everything and certainly did in baseball. Again, I want to talk about that coming up. But now we're looking at a World Series that has the Houston Astros, which has a whole bunch of Latin players, and the Philadelphia Phillies, who have a, a handful of Latin players, gives us the opportunity to talk about the incredible influence that maybe it always has, but is it is 2022 as a, a time in the history of baseball in the U.S. where this influence might be as great as ever? You mean the influence of Cuban players or Latin players more broadly? I think both. We can talk about yeah. Cubans specifically, but I, I also think Latin players, Caribbean players, South American players, I mean, uh, more broadly as well. Yeah, well, definitely in terms of the Cuban players, you've seen the, the influence increase, uh, uh, particularly in the last 10, 15 years uh, with a dr very dramatic increase in the, the number of players leaving Cuba, both the uh, whether defecting or leaving through uh, quote unquote legal means uh, where they're allowed to, to fly out uh, uh, rather than try to es escape on, on boat or go try to go through a se separate country. Um, you know, one of the numbers, uh, uh, Francis Romero, who's a, a member of the Baseball Writers Association and tracks this, uh, the departures from Cuba really, really closely. Uh, he had uh, the number at 202 players leaving Cuba in 2015. That was a a record, uh, and he told me that in you know the in years that didn't involve uh, issues with COVID, uh, you know you were looking at probably uh, about uh, 100 players leaving Cuba, uh, you know each year. So we've definitely seen a dramatic increase uh, in in that uh, in players from that country. In fact, going into last year uh, for USA Today, I did a story uh, basically putting together a, a lineup of just Cuban-born players, and it would have been pretty formidable. Uh, the little light on pitching, maybe, but in terms of the the uh, the the lineup itself, uh, and in fact, uh, two of those players are on the Astros this year: Yuli Gurriel and uh, Jordan Alvarez. Uh, so, yeah, we've definitely seen the the a spike in the influence of Cuban players. As far as Latin players overall, I, I, that's really been going on uh, for for quite some time. Uh, you know, the Dominican Republic typically uh, at the start of a season will have anywhere between 90 and 100 players on opening day rosters, uh, easily uh, the, the highest number. So, uh, and Venezuela is typically second behind that. And then it's some, you know, in some order, either Cuba, Puerto Rico, Mexico, um, you know, sort of year in, year out. Uh, I think uh, the number is generally tends to be about uh, something like 25, 26%, somewhere in that range um, of players on opening day rosters were born in countries outside uh, the 50 United States, uh, and, and most of those are from Latin America. So I want to ask more about that in a second, but I do have a question about the Cuban players. You talked about leaving legally. I mean, the legend is that you, you get, you go to Mexico or you, you go with a youth team and you then defect and you end up going from Mexico or another country into the U S or, or something. How does a, how does a young baseball player leave Cuba? You said might fly out of there. How do they get the permission to leave legally when they're losing maybe hundreds of players every year out of their their talent pool. They had seen uh, just a dramatic rise in, in defections, uh, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then 
2013, Cuba actually uh, made some reforms uh, where they started allowing players to some players to sign uh, professional contracts in other countries, not the U.S., but in in Europe and and countries in Asia. Uh, and they also uh, changed the. Uh, their immigration, uh, some immigration policies that uh, so they were allowing people to leave more easily, uh, and including baseball players. Now, the top players uh, supposedly would have been blocked uh, from being able to leave so so freely, but um, again, uh, Francis Romero, who really covers this stuff and 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 wrote a book that actually uh, goes year by year and and details pretty much every player that has left Cuba uh, to come to the United States. And in a lot of cases, in, in some of these cases, what, what he was able to determine was that essentially someone, uh, an investor is what they're typically referred to as, uh, would essentially pay uh, you know, the, the Cuban government to be able to unblock that, that level of player. Um, you know, for example, uh, Johan Moncada from uh, from the White Sox, he left Cuba legally. Uh, we don't know the specifics. Uh, he's he's never really talked about that. Uh, the, his, his agents uh, uh, have not offered up a lot of details, but he uh, left legally. I think it was to uh, to Guatemala, where he established uh, residency and then signed with with the with the White Sox. So you you do see a lot of that happening, and in fact, uh, Francis. Uh, in in his uh, sort of you know outlining figuring out how players have left, he determined that while the the it used to be the vast majority were guys who who left illegally, sneaking out of the country, uh, going through a third country, uh, perhaps uh, when they were in international tournaments, uh, uh, abandoning the team and such. Uh, that has changed to now. He he estimates that seventy uh, percent of the the players who are are leaving are leaving quote unquote legally. Wow! And now, did these policies start changing after the death of Fidel Castro? It was in uh, 2013, 2014 when uh, the the new policy, the the sort of the the relaxed uh, uh, immigration policies uh, went into effect. Are Cubans still as crazy about baseball as they? have been forever and uh on the island yeah that's that's my understanding i i haven't been there but uh i i think baseball is still the 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 prime sport the 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 national pastime uh, as it uh, is here their na their national sport i've read some stories where soccer has started to make some inroads uh but you know you uh you still see and hear you, you read stories and see uh, the the gathering at the at the the La Quina Caliente the, the hot corner in the the Central Park in Havana where uh, baseball fans just basically gather and argue about baseball like for hours on end so that's something that still happens. You were born in Cuba, Caesar, but you've never been there since you were a few months old, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my family left in '65. We we left on the Camarioca boat lift. I was five months old. Uh, and I have not been back. Uh, the, the only time, other than seeing photos and, and video, the only time I've actually seen Cuba was uh, flying over it uh, on a vacation trip to uh, Jamaica. Uh, and, you know, we, we flew over sort of the, the center. I saw this sort of green swath. I don't know why I didn't think that this might happen. Obviously, a flight from Miami to Jamaica is, is not going to be uh, going to fly at a pretty low altitude. And I saw this enormous green swath below us. And I realized that's Cuba. And that was the only time I've actually seen seen it with my own eyes since I, since I left. Do you want to go there? 
Uh, I do. Um, I, 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 I wish I had done it before. I haven't, uh, uh, but I, I would very much want, want to go and, and see the, the places where my family lived um, and, and just uh, try to, most of my family is here now, but I, I still want to see the land of my birth. How do your parents feel about that desire to go there? Um, I think they would be kind of afraid, um, you know, to be honest. My my mom actually went back in 1980 uh, during the Maria boat lift to bring back her brother and uh, his wife and, and two kids. Uh, she was there for uh, about a month waiting, trying to get them out. And finally, like right before the, the boat that her and others uh, had had uh, rented, uh, to go down there, uh, they they loaded up, and and fortunately they were among the people who were were put on the boat. Uh, my dad has never gone there. He left when uh, he was still of military age, and was very fortunate to be able to get out. What so uh, he would never go back, uh, at least not while it's a communist regime for for the fears. Uh, uh, you know, th that he would have re regarding that. But uh, yeah, I, I'm sure they'd be nervous, but I, I definitely want to go back at some point. Is your generation torn uh, more than your parents' generation about the relationship that you might have personally and that the United States government might have with the Cuban government? It, it varies. I, I certainly think that um, generationally, the intensity might not be quite there uh, like it would be for my parents' generation. You know, they are the ones who actually experienced having to give up everything, leave their homes, leave their family and friends behind uh, to go to a country not knowing what would happen. Um, you know, while I was with them, I was only five months old. It wasn't my experience. Um, so I think that that, uh, yes, I think in, in that there's a generational difference. And I also think there's also proximity difference. Uh, I think those the intensity of those feelings, I think the closer you are to the Cuban-American community in Miami, where uh, that's sort of constantly on Spanish language radio, um, probably uh, even Cuban-Americans of my generation and younger probably feel though have those similar feelings more intensely than say a Cuban enclave in uh, you know, North Jersey or New York or or in other places, uh, uh, because they're not they're not in it. You know, they don't hear about it every day uh, in in the local uh, news and media. I I am reticent to ask a journalist this question, and you're not obligated to answer it. But is U.S. policy toward Cuba um, reasonable at this point? I, w I was glad to see the Obama administration try to do something different. Um, if, if you know, the embargo had has been around now for sixty plus years, uh, and if the goal was to to not have a communist country in Cuba, it obviously hasn't worked. Cuba is still a communist country, and while the Castros may not be uh, the president uh, in in title anymore. Um, there, that, that machinery is still in place. The Cuban people there are still suffering. Um, so the policy that has been tried for decades hasn't worked. And I, I was glad to see them at least to see a, just a different tact, uh, you know, I, by no means that I think that by playing a, a, an exhibition game, 
uh, you know, the, Ray, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays playing in Havana against the Cuban national team that suddenly all would be would be wonderful in, in, in the world and, and Cuban and U.S. relations. But uh, it was an attempt to try something different to see if something could change, if, if, if something could, if, if things could get better. Um, so but now but that, of course, was uh, uh, it kind of went back to the, the way it was under the Trump administration. And and we've seen no change yet uh, under the Biden administration. So we'll see. What would be a um, a good reason or two for the U.S. to open up relations with Cuba? Of course, we have relations with communist countries all over the world, right? Some are better than others. Um, some are barely uh, holding on. And they're, they're in tatters. But it isn't as though we don't have diplomatic relations with bad guys, uh, bad actors in the world. Why, why shouldn't we revisit on that basis alone? Well, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm not a foreign policy expert. I'm a, I'm a sports writer. I'm a sports Neither reporter. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's, you know, we, we have relationships with other countries because those countries have something we want. Uh, and and Cuba doesn't have a whole lot of whatever when it comes to natural resources, right? I mean, they were, uh, that that was an economy based on a lot of tourism and and sugar and tobacco and, and rum, um, but you know it's not like uh, we were getting oil from 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 Cuba. So uh, you know, yes, I think there should I think openness. Uh, I think having the connection can help. Uh, you know, if they can can experience uh, some of the freedoms that we experience here, I think that could only help in maybe changing things there. So. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, there should be, uh, uh, you know, some kind of uh, normalized relations. We we have uh, embassies in a lot of other countries where where we don't agree on on uh, on systems of government and, and economic policies and et cetera. Uh, and from a baseball standpoint, uh, you know, the connection uh, is part of the, the the reason to do it would be. Uh, the whole issue of the defections and the the players having to use smugglers to get off uh, to get off the island and the dangers that that poses. So that would be uh, just from a just from the strictly baseball side of it. That would be one reason uh, to try to try and eliminate that element of the how players uh, uh, leave the island sometimes. As far as you know, um, are Cubans still as crazy about American big league baseball as they were fifties before that? I, I think so. I think they they certainly know what's going on here, and uh, from what I understand, they they follow the guys who uh, who have left Cuba and are and are having a huge impact here in the, in the United States in the major leagues. They know about those guys, uh, even if there are efforts by the government to to keep them from finding out. They're they're resourceful enough to to get information about uh, players like Guriel and and Alvarez and and the and Abreu and and all the players that are on uh, the White Sox and. Uh, you know, and then I've seen scenes of that of the uh, the Laquina uh, Caliente in the in the in the Central Park in Havana, and they don't only argue about baseball in Cuba; they argue about baseball in the United States as well. Cesar Brioso uh, has written last seasons in Havana. The Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba, published in 2019. And they don't give me anything for this, but I'm going to tell you it's published by the University of Nebraska Press. 
which runs its operations just up the road from where I am right now. And uh, uh, I guess the question about that is, why? Why this book and why now? Well, that was actually my second book on the topic of Cuban baseball history. Uh, the first one I wrote came out in the 2015. Uh, it was called uh, Havana Hardball, and it focused on the 40, mid to late 40s. Um, that was a time when, uh, and, and the season I, I look at was uh, specifically in 46, 47, the, the uh, sort of what's still considered the greatest finish in, in Cuban League history with Almendares and Havana, the eternal rivals uh, from a league that began in uh, 1878, just a couple of years after uh, the formation of the National League here. Uh, and when that, as that season was finishing up, the Brooklyn Dodgers and Jackie Robinson uh, arrived in Havana for spring training. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, there was a great many storylines that involved Cuba, Major League Baseball, the Negro Leagues, the Mexican League that were all sort of intersecting in Havana. Uh, and I, I, so I, I wrote about that and that came about because of my dad, essentially, uh, when I was a kid. He, uh, you know, told me the stories. He was a he grew up as an Almendares fan, uh, living in Havana, and he told me stories about all these American players who would come and and play winter ball every year. Uh, you know, names that I knew from just watching TV, watch, watching baseball games as a kid, whether it was Tommy Lasorda, uh, you know, uh, Monty Irvin, uh, Max Lanier, uh, even uh, Chuck Connors was a was a minor leaguer in the. Uh, with the Dodgers and play, played in Cuba. So, uh, you know, and as I grew up, I started to appreciate those stories more. I uh, became a journalist and, and started finding some of these players uh, went to, for newspaper articles and just started researching and, and knew I, at some point I wanted to write a book. And, and so when the opportunity came, that, that was the, the book that came out. And Last Seasons in Havana really is sort of picks up where that first book left, left off. Um, it, it starts in the, in the 50s. At that point, uh, the Cuban League is now under the umbrella of, of organized baseball. Um, not only that, but they also have minor league baseball. They had had uh, the uh, Havana Cubans of the Florida International League. And in 56, that team became the Havana Sugar Kings of the International League, AAA. Um, and so professional baseball was flourishing in Cuba in, in the late 1950s. And then, of course, uh, the Castro Revolution happened and everything changed, not just baseball, but all, life uh, in Cuba completely changed. So there are so many interesting characters, and, and some of them aren't actually human beings, but the Havana Sugar Kings is one of the interesting characters, a, a guy who owned a family named Maduro, uh, Bobby Maduro. But um, the the big players in winter ball, you, you mentioned uh, Amandaris, right? And Sinfuegos and uh, Habana and Mariano. Is that right? You got those Mariano. four teams? Yeah, those are the those are the primary four teams. Uh, the, the Cuban League, had, the, the sort of lineup of teams had had changed uh, throughout the, the, the first uh, half of the century. Sometimes a, a team might show up like Santa Clara, which was one of the great teams in the 20s. Uh, but then that team sort of vanished after, uh, you know, like by the 30s. So, but by the mid 1940s, those four teams that that you mentioned, uh, Almendares, Alana, Cienfuegos, and Mariano, uh, they were the the core. Of, uh, they they were the 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 teams year in and year out from that time moving forward. And and all those teams, 
although they represented sort of different parts of, of the country, they all played in, in Havana uh, at the El Gran Stadium de, de La Habana, uh, which is the, the stadium where the Rays actually play, went same stadium, uh, a little more refurbished, more updated, uh, but it's, it's the same stadium where, where that league played. So all those four teams just played against each other in one city. And uh, in one of my books, I'd sort of likened it to in the 40s, like what you might consider a, uh, New York in the 50s uh, with the the Yankees, Giants, and Dodgers, except to throw in the Mets and they would all play in Yank in a new Yankee stadium and only play against each other. That was basically the uh, the the atmosphere uh, that you had in 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 Havana at that time. So uh, I don't want to confuse anybody. You've mentioned it. There there were the the winter ball teams, and I mean some of the players. Carl Yastrzemski was a teenager when he played there, right? Uh, Tommy Lasorda well, was there for several years, right? Well, Yastrzemski actually played uh, there during the uh, during the uh, Junior World Series. Okay, uh, yeah, he he was playing for the Minneapolis Miners, Millers against the Sugar Kings. Uh, the the Millers were the champion of the American Association, and the Sugar Kings the International League, and they played in the the Junior World Series. Uh, in, this is Triple uh, A baseball. This is Triple A baseball in yeah. 1959, right? Yeah, and uh, Tommy Lasorda played there for a number of years. He's a bit of a star there, wasn't he? He was very popular down there. Uh, he played for Almendadas, won won a championship, also played for Madia Now. Uh, you know, he he was famous for uh, getting into a brawl with uh, with uh, first baseman uh, uh, Chiquitín Cabrera, uh, where. The, uh, he threw at him and Cabrera charged him and and you, you read the accounts I think uh, Lasorda basically like who was much smaller than this guy this guy was a big first baseman big power hitting first baseman and he just kind of got low got some leverage and kind of flipped him uh, before everybody else ran out of the field and was able to pull them apart uh, so it was sort of very popular down there and a, and a really strong defender of, of the, the Cuban League, you know, in the, in the late 1950s, as the revolution was going on and, and there were concerns about the player safety and and whether teams wanted to keep having American players go down there. Uh, he uh, is quoted in a, in the sporting news, uh, you know, with a, a very full throated defense of uh, the Cuban League and how well they were treated down there. American players were treated down there. Uh, and, you know, years later, as a manager of the Dodgers, uh, he, he often spoke uh, very, you know, in, in loving terms about his time down there and, and, and the Cuban uh, baseball fans. Uh, so, yeah, a, a very popular uh, figure in, in Cuban baseball history. I mean, this was a time before Castro where you would bring your family or you'd bring your wife or you'd bring your, your loved ones down for the winter and play there. I don't remember exactly what the months were, but you'd play two or three months there in the winter, a couple months in the winter, but you might bring the whole family down and not just play baseball, but enjoy Cuba. Yeah, that was, that was very common. The, the Cuban Winter League uh, lasted, uh, you know, largely from uh, November to February. Uh, so, at, you know, after after the World Series, uh, they they would go down there. Uh, it was very common for American players to, like you said, bring their, their families. They were put up. Uh, uh, in uh, Club Nautico, it, it was one of the places uh, 
which was on the beach. Uh, and, and so they, and the Cuban league, uh, you know, they didn't play every day, you know, they would, they would play maybe four games a, a week. Uh, you know, they would always, always play on Sunday, but then, uh, so you would have some downtime, uh, you know, during the week to, to be able to enjoy the, the, the nightlife in Havana, the, the beaches. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. And then, and, and Cuba, Havana was, uh, was kind of a vacation spot for Americans in general uh, in the forties and fifties. So before the, before the fifties or before the, the integration of baseball, I mean, we all know that there were no black players between the 1880s and 1947, although there were probably a certain number of sort of Afro Caribbean, darker skin players in major league baseball, but not African-Americans as we would call them. But but Cuba and other places, Dominican and other places in the Caribbean is where is where Negro League players would go to to really make some extra money and also be treated better. Is that right? Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Negro League players and and whole teams were going down to Cuba uh, as early as the 1900. Uh, uh, you know, there there were barnstorming teams that went out, went there every every winter. Uh, it became what was known as the American season, um, which not just wasn't just the Negro League teams, but also some um, major league teams would come down and and play exhibition games. And then, of course, they would also uh, base uh, spring training games there. But yeah, but as far as the Negro League players uh, were treated uh, better in Cuba and other Latin American countries in the winter than they were in their in their home country. Uh, you know, I interviewed Monty Irvin years ago and he talked about uh, uh, how great it was down there. And, and you know, this is a time before these huge million dollar contracts. So, you know, whenever for like uh, major league players, when the season ended, uh, they either had to, a lot of them, if you weren't a star, right, you, you had to go get a job at, at in the, the local hardware store or whatever for the off season. Or if you, if you had a chance, you could go play winter league ball in Cuba or one of the other Latin American countries. Um, but yeah, it was a def definitely for for the Negro League players. Uh, they were treated there much better there than than they they were uh, here in the U.S. And part of that being that the the, the Cuban League was uh, integrated in in 1900. Before we we talk about about Castro, let's let's talk a little bit about the possibility that there would be a a, a major league team in Havana. How serious was that talk, and how did that come about? Well, that was Bobby Maluto's goal. He was the owner of the the Sugar Kings when he when he bought the. Uh, the Florida International League team and then turned it into a AAA team. That was his goal all along. The The motto of the team was un paso mas y llegamos, one more step and we get there. And yes, that's an allusion to being uh, uh, AAA and one step from the majors, but he also, the the team itself, the, the franchise, he felt was one step away from being in the majors. And that was his goal. Uh, the El the, Grand Stadium was built in 1946. It was kind of state of the art at the time. Um, and... Uh, you know, could hold uh, 35,000 and uh, absolutely a stated goal. I've seen stories uh, from, you know, as, as uh, Major League Baseball started talking about expansion and Havana was one of the cities that was being mentioned. Uh, uh, at one point, Branch Rickey even talked about there, there needed to be a 
a third major league with a, a large emphasis on on Latin America and other international uh, cities. Uh, so, so yeah, th this was a uh, serious uh, idea that uh, when baseball expanded, that Cuba, that Havana might be one of the cities that expanded to. Of course, uh, that became impossible after the revolution. So Maduro was very ambitious and uh, and hopeful. Uh, how how interested were the rest of the major league owners? We have to remember that that this is the late fifties, mid to late fifties, and there wasn't U.S. expansion yet. There was no Angels. There was no uh, teams basically until the late fifties in the West Coast. So how uh, how serious were the owners uh, of Major League Baseball? I mean, I don't. I certainly don't think it would have been the first place they expanded to. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, they 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 certainly would have wanted to go west uh, first and foremost uh, because of all those open markets there. Uh, but you know, at least uh, I, I read at least one story uh, where the owner of the uh, Milwaukee club was talking uh, about Havana as a as a potential uh, expansion site. Uh, so had the revolution not happened, I do think eventually that would have been a a real possibility, maybe in the 60s, potentially. Cesar Brioso, the author of both Havana Hardball and last season's In Havana. Uh, we're talking with him on Watch the Media. I'm John Schrader. Okay, let's talk about the revolution and, and what happened. Uh, I think maybe a, a person who just looks at it and scratches the surface and says, oh, Castro took over and that was the end of it. But it's not that simple, right? There, there's a there's a point here where the collision becomes a really interesting part of that story. So let's start with the revolution and what happened to baseball when Castro's uh, gang took over the country. Yeah, so uh, in many ways, it was really kind of a slow rolling uh, change. Uh, but, in you know, in terms of baseball, uh, uh, you know, there were there were concerns as the revolution was going on. Uh, should should you know should American players be allowed uh, to to go down there? Is it too dangerous? Um, you know, and there Bobby Maduro was trying to make sure that the to to keep the the sugar kings down there, uh, and the international league was one was 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 at least coming up with contingency plans in case they had to leave. Um, and and then the revolution happened. Um, uh, and Castro took over in January 1959, and everybody kind of breathed sort of a sigh of relief, like, okay, well, now that Batista's gone, the, the, the dictator that he overthrew, maybe things will settle down. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, recognized the, the Castro government uh, pretty quickly, um, and everybody thought the worst might be over, but then... Uh, things started to turn. Uh, the, the 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 Castro revolution, the, the Castro regime started having uh, these show trials uh, for Bat former Batista uh, uh, government officials and and soldiers. Uh, they started uh, 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 expropriating uh, businesses, inc including uh, U.S. businesses, and you know slowly the the relationship between the two countries started to sour. Uh, and at that point, that's when really, uh, as far as baseball is concerned, that's that's when the the, the real threat uh, started as far as professional baseball. Uh, and eventually, uh, in the middle of the 1960 season, um, 
things had gotten so bad at that point, and there were there were counter revolutionary movements going on as well, trying to topple uh, uh, Castro then. And so you had the uh, the International League uproot the Sugar Kings uh, while they were on a road trip uh, uh, in in the U.S. and moved them to Jersey City abruptly. Uh, so abruptly, in fact, that they didn't even really have time for to get new uniforms. And in the photos you see, um, you can tell that the Sugar Kings jerseys they had basically stitched uh, Jersey City across the chest where it had said uh, Cubanos in script. Uh, and somehow they managed to get uh, red caps with uh, a J uh, on them for 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 Jersey City. Um, uh, so it, it, that happened abruptly. They finished out the season in Jersey City, spent another season there before eventually uh, the franchise moved to to Jacksonville. Um, and then in for the 60-61 season, uh, Ford Frick uh, said that the American players couldn't go down there. Um, um, and so that season was played, the, that Winter League season was played with uh, entirely Cuban rosters for the first time in decades because uh, they had, had contingents of American players going back uh, th throughout it, its history, basically, uh, at least certainly the, the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and then after that season, after the 60-61 season ended, that was that was pretty much it uh, as far as professional baseball, uh, the, the, the Cuban Winter League uh, as it had existed. And this got kind of weird, um, at least by our standards at this point. Uh, Castro would show up at the stadium with a rifle or they'd sit in the dugout. Some of these soldiers, Castro's people would sit at the end of the dugout with guns during the game, right? Yeah, 59. Uh, it was not at all uncommon to see uh, soldiers, revolutionary soldiers at, at the game, uh, in, the, in the stands, uh, in dugouts, on the field. Uh, and it really kind of came to to a sort of a dangerous head in a in, in a game in July uh, against uh, Rochester, the Red Wings. Uh, it was the anniversary, the, 20, the you know the Castro's movement was called the twenty sixth of July movement, and uh, there was a game being played. And when the clock struck midnight, uh, soldiers and and people started shooting guns for you know into the air, celebrating basically. And some stray bullets uh, hit, uh, you know, grazed uh, players uh, on the field, uh, including uh, Frank Verdi, who was uh, 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 the third base coach at the time, I guess. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it it like grazed his his uh, his cap. I guess he was wearing uh, like a liner, you know, like a like a, what they what were basically uh, were the helmets of the time, and otherwise it might have been a lot a lot worse. They cleared the uh, the teams off the field, and and the uh, and Rochester left. They 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 did not finish the finish the the series, um, and and then also in, and I, I mentioned before the Junior World Series. Uh, that was where it, you know it was there were soldiers everywhere. Castro uh, was in attendance uh, every game. Uh, the series had started in uh, in Minneapolis, uh, but it was. Uh, snowing and ice freezing rain for the first two two games so they moved the rest of the series it finished uh in havana the last last five games um and again with castro and soldiers in attendance uh the whole time uh castro really used those games especially um you know as sort of uh 
a propaganda tool. Like uh, he he would show up and make this grand entrance, uh, you know, at, at all these uh, Sugar Kings games. And there was a famous three inning exhibition game prior to one of the Sugar Kings games uh, to to raise money for the the new regime. Uh, where you know you've probably seen photos of uh, Castro and and Camilo Cienfuegos and other revolutionaries with babulos uh, across the chest, the bearded ones. That was the the uh, the army team, and they played three innings against. I think it was a, a team of police officers, and then they played the Sugar Kings game after that. So, um, yeah, the the baseball was a, as it later became was very much of a propaganda tool for the Castro regime. I know you talk a little bit about this, but I'm curious. Uh, was Ca Castro as great a player as he told everybody he was? Uh, not at all. And I'm not really sure that he told people oh, that. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it really became a, a, a thing that just kind of grew and grew uh, uh, in various ways. Uh, like one of the earlier references to uh, – he, 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 he was an athlete growing up, uh, you know, I, I – I think he played volleyball and basketball in in, in college, uh, uh, but in terms of being like a major league prospect, the the, the first reference I saw about this was uh, uh, was uh, Joe Cambria uh, quote uh, quoted like like could cast what if, what if you know could Castor have been a a prospect, and he said something you know sort of you know kind of nondescript like really nothing. Uh, you know, over the, over the top that he had seen him, scouted him once or twice, and he probably could have been a, a, a B-League player or something along those lines. Uh, but it just kind of grew from there, um, including uh, uh, one player who had played in the in the winter ball, like uh, telling this story in a magazine article how Castro came out of the stands and and like took the ball from the pitcher and 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 pitched in a game which not none of which ever happened um and, and even the details that he gave the magazine were wrong about his own like the year he played the, the year he would have played in in the in the cuban league and when this event supposedly happened uh castro was actually i i think still in prison on the isle of pines after uh one of the one of the attempts to overthrow but earlier attempts to overthrow batista but that that sort of urban legend kind of grew over the years uh, as as the story kept getting retold and, and rewritten in, in magazines and articles and books. Uh, but uh, uh, Roberto Gonzalez Echevarria, who wrote a terrific uh, book, uh, uh, Pride of Havana, about the, the the whole arc of Cuban baseball history, uh, I th he found uh, one box score, University of Havana box score, that included a, an F. Castro which may have been him, uh, but that but that was it. So there was really no evidence that he was much of a player. And even if you see the photos during that exhibition game, like the way he's holding the baseball, his grip on, he, he pitched in those that three-inning exhibition game. It just doesn't look like anything, a, 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 any legitimate pitcher, pitcher would actually, the way, the way they would hold the ball. Is there any evidence that Castro might have lamented the damage or maybe he didn't accept the damage uh, that he uh, wrought on on baseball and its place in the hemisphere uh, after he took over. Well, while the Sugar Kings were still there, he Baduro talks about trying to work with Castro about trying to, you know, keep the team there and 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 try, you know, the, of course, with everything going on, you know, attendance at that point in both the Winter League and for the Sugar Kings uh, was going down, uh, you know, because you know. 
people were, were fleeing Cuba, were starting to flee Cuba in, in, in 60, 60, you know, 60 and 61. Uh, so there were, you know, much bigger things to worry about than, than attending baseball games. So he was trying to keep the, the team afloat. Uh, but, you know, in terms of, you know, but once uh, the International League pulled um, the Sugar Kings, I, you know, from what I could tell, I think Castro just took that as an affront and, and the opportunity to install uh, what was essentially sort of a Soviet model of, of uh, not just baseball, but all sports in Cuba. This is a this is a Cuban story, but how is it also an American story? And how have you made this an American story as much as a Cuban or even Cuban American story? Well, I, I think the it, it's because the ties between uh, Cuba and the U.S. with regard to baseball uh, used used to run so deep and 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 go back so far. Uh, the the players with players flowing back and forth, like I said. Uh, you know, uh, American players, uh, both major leaguers and Negro leaguers, going down to Cuba every winter to 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 play, uh, and you know, big name players, uh, not not just uh, you know minor leaguers who you may not guys who would go on to to uh, big seasons uh, uh, in the majors. Uh, that's how kind of they got they got their start down there, uh, or, or you know, aside from playing in the minors, they also went down there to to hone their skills. Guys coming back from World War II. Uh, to get ready to return to the majors, went down to Cuba, uh, and, and then of course the Cuban players who who before the revolution used to come here, uh, you know Esteban Bayan played for the Troy Haymakers in the in the 1880s. Uh, that was the earliest uh, Cuban player uh, of, of note. But you know as early as 1911, uh, the Cincinnati Reds signed uh, Armando Marsans and Rafael Almeida, and you had Adolfo Luque, who was probably the uh, the the first uh, Latino star who he pitched uh, in the majors for twenty years uh, pitched with the 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 Red Sox uh, during the nineteen nineteen World Series against the Chicago Black Sox. Uh, you know, uh, Miguel Angel Gonzalez uh, was uh, a catcher for a long time for uh, you know for for several uh, major league teams and then ended up being the third base coach for many years for the Cardinals. Uh, and was on in the third base box during uh, Enos Slaughter's Mad Dash home in the World Series, so th there were there 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 had been all these connections uh, between with the baseball connections between Cuba and the U.S. Um, and, and all that ended abruptly uh, after 1959, um, and and that's what uh, you know baseball fans here lost. Uh, you know, like you saw. In the 60s, the guys who actually didn't even get a chance to play in the Cuban League, uh, but Cuban players like Tony Perez and Tony Oliva, um, uh, you know, uh, Louis you know, Tiant, Louis uh, Tiant, uh, Pascual, you know, Pascual uh, yeah. Perez, Pe yeah. uh, Pedro Ramos. That was sort of like the, the the golden age at the time. At that time, Cuba had uh, the the highest number of uh, players in the majors from Latin America, more than Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Venezuela. Uh, and it was only because I think that the talent of Cuba got cut off from being able to come to the U.S. that that's when you saw the the rise of the Dominican Republic and Venezuela in terms of producing major league talent. I I do believe that if uh, if not for the revolution, 
Cuba would would have been what the Dominican Republic became, uh, and and perhaps even more so uh, because it had a much higher population uh, than the Dominican Republic. Uh, so more uh, potentially more players to to draw from, and all that just got cut off uh, in an instant, essentially. So these books, uh, authored by Cesar Brioso, um, Havana Hardball, and then the the most recent one published by the University of Nebraska Press, last season's in Havana. It's a story about Cuban baseball. It's a story about how Castro impacted. It's a it's a it's an American story as well. But it's also something very personal for you, um, your family. You've talked about why you decided to write this book. What has it meant to you? What has it done to you? What have you learned about yourself and maybe your family through the process of learning more about this baseball history? For me personally, it was a way to sort of reconnect with uh my heritage, uh, my my the, the family stories uh from Cuba uh that i had heard as a child um that they became far more resonant uh, you know for for me uh you know and uh so th that's what it, it it did for me and in, and in fact uh in writing you know in writing both those books there they i included uh some uh family elements in 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 the in the story in the narrative um, sort of tried to weave that in where I could, uh, because my, because my, my dad was a, a, a baseball fan and, and, and watched this happen, uh, you know, and my, my uncle, his brother, who was not necessarily a baseball fan, but was very involved in, uh, sort of the anti-Batista movement, although not with the Castro movement, there were multiple, uh, anti-Batista movements and he was part of one of them. Uh, so I was able to really, connect with all of these family stories and you know if I, if I write the next book it'll probably be far less about baseball and far more about my family history is there another book what's next uh, uh well that's kind of what i've been uh it's not been it's not written yet but i've, I've been researching and I've, I've written chapters here and there uh on sort of the my family history and and sort of how they got out of cuba and and the stories involved in there some of them are are mentioned uh briefly in in the those two books but uh what i want to do is really expand on on that element uh, that that uh, uh you know to make it like i said more more of a family book and far less of a baseball book do you think through this process too that you've helped a, a generation or two uh possibly more people have a better understanding of Cuba's place in 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 sports. I, I think so. I mean, when I when I would promote the book and and would would do uh, talk about it and and you know afterwards during the signing part, and people would come up and uh, often I'd I'd get from and you know obviously these are baseball fans coming to these book events, and they were like I had no idea about uh, these players going down to Cuba. Uh, you know all those all those years that that's fascinating. You know like you know, people who were baseball fans just didn't know. And certainly, you know, today's fans, because there had been such a uh, sort of break uh, for decades, uh, you know, they did certainly, you know, the younger fans now, you know, who weren't around, say, in the 60s to see uh, Tony in the 70s to see Perez and Tion and Oliva, those guys. Uh, to them, this, the Cuban baseball players is a, is only a, the recent phenomenon that we've seen with guys like 
Guriel and and Abreu and and Jordan Alvarez. And so, yes, I hope that uh, with books like these, they, they understand that those ties go back much farther than than just what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years or so. If anybody ever saw Louis Tiant pitch, they would never forget who Louis Tiant is because of the way he pitched and his delivery. There's a somewhat heartbreaking story in there, and it's probably typical. Um, he his, his father convinced him to go and stay away, don't come back. This was, I think, 1961, and he didn't see his family again, his parents again, for another 12 or 13 years when they were allowed to come to the U.S., and then his father passed away, I believe, shortly thereafter. Well, his father, first of all, we should say, we should say Louis Tiant Sr. was a terrific Great player, yes. uh, ne Negro League uh, pitcher uh, in his own right, a star, and, and was a star pitcher in Cuba. Uh, Tiant told me that he, he actually was, you know, was able to he doesn't really remember them, but he was uh, would sit in the dugout with with and, and at, at games with the, on the team that his his dad was at, uh, you know. And uh, Tianta, when he signed, uh, he he started playing in Mexico. That's where he first started playing. Uh, ended up uh, pitching uh, the the final season of the of the of the Cuban League was the rookie of the year. Uh, and then uh, at this point, he had not signed, uh, you know, with a major league team yet with with Cleveland. He went back to Mexico and he his his intention was to come back to Cuba for the next if there was going to be another winter league team. Uh, and um, his his father told him, look, things are bad here. Don't you you don't want to come back you because if you come back, you won't be able to leave. And it was the 75 World Series when his parents were finally able to come to the U.S., watch him. Uh, watch him pitch there um, they were able to stay but then yeah shortly after that um, I forget exactly when but both his parents actually passed You know, when you're a kid, you, you don't put this stuff together, right? I grew up in the middle of the country, and my dad was, a, I don't know if he was a fan, but we could hear the Minnesota Twins games um, uh, on a radio station nearby. And I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, right? So we, we listened to radio stations in Yankton, South Dakota, and other places, right? And they carried the Twins games all the time. And you hear uh, Oliva, and you hear Camilo Pasquale, and none of this sears your brain when you're a kid and then you get a little bit older and you learn about tony perez and you go wow this is <laughs> this is pretty cool this is pretty but it doesn't when you're a kid it's like oh it's just another ball player we don't think about that yeah i mean my dad told me the stories about cuba i was like okay you know I'm, can i watch the yankee game <laughs> i mean that was you know i mean but it must have stuck somewhere yeah, in there yeah. because as i grew older i knew i wanted to be a sports writer and then suddenly all those stories started to resonate in in a way, especially my first job was in Ocala, Florida. If you've ever been near, in that area, it's a small town, 50,000 circulation paper, uh, central Florida. But all of these guys, retirees, were living kind of in our circulation area. So I just like Max Lanier and uh, Monty Irvin and yeah. Agapito Mayor, who was a big time Cuban player uh, who never even made it out of the minor leagues. But so I started writing these little stories, these little articles on the, the local former ball player, and and it eventually, thankfully, led to these two books. How many years did you, or how long did this 
foment here, and then finally you said, okay, I'm going to do it. How long had you been thinking about? I graduated in college in 83, so, you know, basically in that sort of time frame, mid to mid 80s to 90s, early 90s is where I started to really heavily research it. But I had no idea how to write a book, like how to how to find a publisher. I still don't have an agent, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Um and I just kept gathering all this stuff. And I just like, I, I thought, you know, I'm just never going to, it's never going to happen. And I finally just started a blog, Cuban baseball history. I said, I don't care if I, I don't care if nobody else reads it, you know, I'm just going to, this will be my outlet for all this stuff. And, uh, but I would, it would automatically feed into Twitter and, and Facebook. Right. So what I was doing and my, one of my journalism professors, uh, emailed me and asked me if I had had a, if I had a publisher for, for all this material. And, you know, I didn't know, I, I just kind of figured he might be just making small talk. And I said, no, why you, you got a publisher in mind kind of joking. And and then when the email came back, yes, I, I think I do. <laughs> I just kind of sat there and stared at my computer screen for like five minutes, like, oh my God. <laughs> and he put me in touch with the university press of Florida because he he's published a whole bunch of different books. Um, and um, and then I made my pitch on the Jackie Robin. I you know I knew I since I the Pride of Havana already existed. I knew I couldn't do like the sort of overarching like the whole history because it'd been done. But I just knew that that was the the the, the focus because you know like when I found out that Jackie Robinson's forty seven season started in Havana, I was like, not only am I a Yankees fan, a Cuban baseball fan, but now I'm a huge Jackie Robinson fan too. Yeah. And so, so I pitched it, they loved it. I wrote it. And then once you're, once you're published, it's a lot easier to get published again. And so thank God for university presses. I, uh... Very happy that recently I've been able to write some stuff uh, on Cuban baseball uh, for USA Today. I, I I just did a whole thing on a, a big story on the the whole defection and players leaving, sort of what's been going on the last ten years, and I did something on on the Astros. Uh, uh, so I've been getting the opportunity to write again a little bit here and there, and, and whenever I do, I always pitch something. I wrote I wrote on a. Martin Diego, who we didn't even get to talk about, uh, Hall of Famer, great, great Negro League player, and and have gotten a chance to, to write about, uh, got a chance to write about Oliva before he got inducted in, right before he got inducted yeah. into the Hall of Fame. So that really <laughs> kind of worked out real well. So. Like I sort of had the, the, the book in my head for both in both senses so it, it was just a question of typing it <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah you know i knew i kind of knew the, the structure and, and how it would end the family one like i want to actually write the whole thing before i pitch it because i want to make sure it's like i want to make sure it's not just a collection of interesting stories that it's actually a full narrative there for a book and i'm not sure that it is yet so yeah um but so i'm doing doing that one a little differently Well, the, the book is full of stories. It's full of interesting characters. And um, I haven't read Havana Hardball, but I shall. Uh, but I enjoyed immensely last season's in Havana. 
subtitled The Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. And uh, thanks for writing it and thanks for sharing your stories with us. We appreciate it. Well, I was glad to. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. A book published by the University of Nebraska Press. Cesar Brioso, the author. And I guess the one thing we didn't do in the beginning is why don't you tell us what you do in real life? Yeah, I'm a uh, digital producer at uh, USA Today uh, in the sports department. Uh, uh, I've worked, uh, I've been a journalist uh, for my, my whole life, uh, uh, professional life. I've worked at the Miami Herald, the uh, Sun Sentinel in South Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, I was baseball editor uh, years years ago for, uh, for a few years. Uh, and now I'm a digital producer at uh, USA Today. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media.